Very well. You heard the reading. Only four verses, the very well-known baptism of Jesus, um, and four verses that could probably keep us busy for a very long time. There's a lot to unpack, and so I hope we can get around to uh, clearing up some, um, some confusion about this piece of Scripture and also getting to the message contained therein today. Now, last week we spoke about the fact that we are in the time in the life of the church called Epiphany, the time in which Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, as the Savior of mankind. The idea is the same idea that the, uh, that the wise men had following that very bright star to where Jesus was born. There's a bright light shining in the darkness. We call him Jesus Christ. It's the time of epiphany, the time of revelation. Now we're going to keep going in that vein. This is a very well-known piece to read in the time of epiphany because, of course, at the end of Jesus' baptism, he hears the voice from heaven revealing who he is. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. But we'll get to that at the end. Have you ever lost your glasses? And I don't mean misplacing them for a few hours. I mean really lose them. I, um, I lost my glasses uh, over uh, when I was back home in South Africa on holidays uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I lost them. I won't go into the details too much. But I only got these new ones this week. And so I have been blind as a bat for four weeks. And you know when you lose your glasses, you kind of get by. You can kind of guess what the words are that you're reading, or you kind of guess what the road signs are. And then you kind of get used to not being able to see, and then you get your glasses again. It's amazing. The world looks completely different. Now, I found my glasses this week, and I thought about the last four weeks and not really being able to see anything around me very clearly, and then receiving these amazing things in my eyes, and now I can see everything as clear as the light of day. And I thought, well, that is a good metaphor for understanding the work of the prophets in the Bible. You see, we often think the prophets of the Old and the New Testament were these very special people who could see into the future. That's not their job. That's not what they did. Instead of seeing into the future, the gift the Lord gave them was to see very clearly what is happening now. It's a big difference. When we read the prophets of the Old Testament, when we read about someone like John the Baptist, we mustn't think these people were referring to something that is about to happen. Rather, They had their glasses on and their glasses were clean and sharp and they could see exactly what was needed now. And that is the spirit in which we move today as well. And then I thought, well, the glasses is a good metaphor, but it's not the best one. Because over on our holiday in South Africa and Namibia, my wife competed in a 24-hour mountain bike race through the desert. And of course, she was riding the bike and I had the very tough job of of uh, driving the uh, support car. And so you would drive up, you would, uh, she would be on her own riding the bike. I have no idea why someone would do it. But then me and a friend would be driving ahead to the designated uh, uh, pit stops. And then you wait there 
and you sit underneath this amazing desert sky, and, uh, and then your rider arrives, and you check that their wheels and their gears are still good. You give them something to eat, maybe something uh, uh, cool to drink, and refill their water bottles, and off they go. And as we were sitting, it was a beautiful, beautiful night. The moon was absolutely breathtaking. I took my phone out to take a picture of the moon. Who's ever tried that? Yes. And it was a terrible picture. Now, my friend who was with me is a lot smarter than I am, and I said to him, hey, this phone has this amazing camera. He sold the phone to me as well. So I said, what are you playing at? You sold me this phone. You told me this camera was so good. I can't even take a proper picture of the moon. And he said, of course you can't take a picture of the moon. Your lens is about that big. You need a camera with a lens about that big to take a picture of the moon that looks like that. And I thought, well, that's an even better metaphor for the work of the prophets. The prophets and us see the same things. They don't see into the future. They see the same things, but they see it through a very different lens. They look at it much closer. They see its cracks and its fault lines much clearer. And so when we read about John the Baptist in these verses, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, I think it's important to also read the passage just before it. I'll quickly read through it. In the, this is uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. And saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, referring to the work of John the Baptist. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, and confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you in keeping with uh, my mistake? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist, through the working of the Spirit, saw the world around him very clearly for what it was. He saw that the people of Israel needed repentance. 
And so he gave them the baptism of repentance in the waters of the Jordan. And then he noticed that when the smart, educated, wealthy Pharisees and Sadducees came to see what he was doing, he said to them, you snakes, you hypocrites, you cunning, cunning people, who told you to flee from the coming wrath? You must produce fruits in keeping with repentance. The axe is at the root of the trees. The wrath and judgment is on its way. The one who comes after me, he will judge, and he will judge you harshly, because you do not produce fruits in keeping with repentance. In fact, you think the fact that your forefather was Abraham will save you on the day of judgment. And it won't. Very well, we'll get to that part at the end again. And then we have our piece of scripture today. And Jesus came to where John was baptizing, to be baptized. And John says, no, Lord. If anyone needs to be baptized, I must be baptized by you, not the other way around. And Jesus says something very interesting. He says, no, no, no. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. I need to say a word or two at this point about baptism. There is a difference between the baptism of repentance practiced by John the Baptist and the baptism of the covenant instructed to his followers by Jesus in Matthew 28, when he said, go out and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The baptism that John the Baptist was offering at that specific time in the life of Israel was a baptism to symbolically wash you of your sins. You would go to John the Baptist and you would confess your sins and you would be immersed in the water and brought up out of the water as a symbolic cleansing. You have been cleaned, not by the water, but by the repentance. This is in keeping with the tradition of Israel. In the Old Testament, you remember, Israel would bring offerings, animals, as a sign of repentance. Now, this is a problem, because here we read that Jesus, he who is without sin, comes to John the Baptist to be baptized in the waters of repentance. Now, why would Jesus, who is without sin, need to be baptized, need to repent? This doesn't make sense. During Christmas and during Advent and during Epiphany, we say to each other, the Son of God became flesh. Last week we had uh, John the Evangelist writing and saying the Word of God had become flesh and dwelt among us and we called him Emmanuel. 
Now the baptism of Jesus in the waters of repentance is not for his sake, but for ours. When Jesus says, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness, what he's saying is, John, I must be baptized by you. My Father has sent me to live as a human, as a person among people, and to be truly one of them, to be truly with them, I too must go through these waters. But not to repent, but to become one with them, to be unified with them. This is necessary and proper to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consents and baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes up out of the water and leaves the water, he sees heaven opening up and the Spirit of God coming down in the form of a dove and alighting on him. And then a voice from heaven, and here we can uh, uh, understand from the text that only Jesus saw the Spirit coming down, but everyone heard the voice, and the voice said, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Now, this piece of Scripture is not about baptism. And it's not about immersion or sprinkling. And it's not about infants or adults. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about those words. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. He has been obedient. He has gone through the waters of repentance even though he does not need it for your sakes. That is his obedience. And with him I am well pleased. There's a lot to unpack. Just as an aside, why, why um, the question I ask myself is, this thing of the image of the Spirit um, as a dove, where does that come from? Now, what we can understand and what I could figure out this week was, in the, last week we had in the beginning. You know in the beginning, in Genesis, in the beginning the, uh, uh, when God created the world, I think it's ver- chapter 1, verse 2, the writer says, The Spirit of God was moving over the old waters. Now, the rabbis in the rabbinic tradition has always interpreted this moving of the Spirit over the waters as a dove moving over the water. So that's where the image comes from. The other well-known image is, of course, of Noah in the ark who sends out the dove, which later comes back with a branch. And so the dove as a symbol of new life, of regeneration, and of peace. And that is why in the time of Jesus as well, the spirit was uh, symbolically represented by a dove. And so the spirit alighted on Jesus, and everyone heard the voice. And after that, of course, Jesus goes into the desert. And after that, he begins his ministry with the same words as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. If you were a good Israelite, if you knew your Hebrew Bible uh, quite well, and you heard the words, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased, immediately your thoughts would have gone to two very important pieces of scripture. This is my beloved son, 
is a piece of scripture taken from Psalm number 2. And Psalm 2 was often read in the temple when a new king was crowned or was anointed. And so the new king would be crowned, anointed, and they would read Psalm 2, which says, the Lord says, this is my beloved son. So you see the implication here. Hearing the voice from heaven is already a sign that Jesus stands in the same tradition as the kings of Israel. And the second piece, with him I am well pleased, is from Isaiah 42, often called one of the servant songs. Isaiah saying that the servant of the Lord is not a high and mighty warrior. He's not a very wealthy king. He is a humble servant, an obedient servant. And the Lord says in Isaiah 42, I think verse 7, and with him I am well pleased. Now Matthew is writing to a Jewish community, an Israelite community, and they hear these words and their first thought would have been, yes, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is king. He is Lord. He really is the Son of God. Now, Carrie Ann and I didn't plan this, I promise. But she began this morning with referring to a book called Extreme Ownership. And I haven't read it, but I think I get the gist, Carrie Ann. It's about taking unprecedented, radical ownership of your life of your decisions, of the people who work with you and for you and above you and below you and everyone else. And I thought to myself while you were speaking, wow, I think what Jesus was doing in being baptized in a baptism he didn't need was extreme ownership. He was taking ownership of mankind by going through those waters. We've spoken about the voice from heaven. Now we need to speak about the baptism that John promises will come when Jesus' ministry begins, the baptism by fire and by spirit. We don't quite know what this means. We can refer to the book of Acts, of course, where the apostles, uh, the disciples are huddled together in a room in Jerusalem hiding from those they think want to prosecute them, persecute them. And suddenly the room was filled with great noise, and suddenly there were tongues, flaming tongues above their heads, and they began speaking in strange languages. We can refer to that. We're not exactly sure what Matthew, what John the Baptist meant. Something that's always helped me when thinking about this passage um, is the image of a crucible in which precious metals are purified and refined. You see, washing something with water will certainly make it clean. But when you are dealing with certain materials, especially metals, water cannot wash away all the impurities. But a very hot fire can do that. And these days people use chemical purifying as well. But in the time of John especially, uh, they would have heated their metals to burn out all the impurities. And I've always thought, and of course we have the expression in English, baptism by fire. 
which has always helped me to think about exactly this kind of image. The fire with which the Lord will baptize us is a fire that will purify us from the inside out, will make us pure, will refine our being and our characters into that which the Lord has always meant us to be, into that who the Lord has always meant us to be. And the funny thing, of course, when you purify gold, it doesn't become more. It doesn't uh, 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 increase in weight. It decreases in weight, but the value skyrockets. And I quite think the Lord does the same with us. I think when you step into the Lord's fire to be purified, uh, you don't become more. You don't gain more skills and more fame and more money and more cars and more friends and all these other more, more, mores. I think you get less and less and less and less, but you are left purer for it. You are more of the person God wants you to be and calls you to be. For that as well as an aside. Baptism by spirit, well, we know that we have the Holy Spirit as our comforter. We know that what John was saying and what Jesus was doing and promising and what happened to the apostles in the book of Acts is the same thing that happens to us. When we invite the Lord into our hearts, we gain access to His Spirit. We are baptized in the presence and the person of God who is three in one. And again, we can make a whole different sermon about that. John the Baptist was a prophet who urged the people around him to repent for the kingdom of God has drawn near. The baptism that he offered was a baptism to free you of your sins. Jesus was baptized and received the Spirit and went into the desert and after that began his own ministry with the words, Repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. This thing of repentance is very important. And we need to make sure of the things that we repent of. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to John at the river the ones he called the brood of vipers, they lived by, uh, for all intents and purposes, very good lives. They were very moral people. They followed all the etiquette and all the moral obligations of their world. They knew their Bibles very well. They went to church a lot. They gave their offerings. They might have helped those in need. They didn't swear or drink or smoke. We think they wouldn't have. So they wouldn't have, have had many sins to repent of. But John says to them, there's something else you need to repent for. And it's not the sins. It's not those things you do on Saturday nights. It's your attitude. It's your belief about God. It's the fact that you think you're actually okay. You don't need repentance. It's the fact that you think 
your ancestry, the fact that Abraham is your forefather, will save you. That's the thing you need to repent of. And I would argue we are in the same boat as the Pharisees. We try to live good lives. We try to be good people. We can repent of all our small sins all we want, but if we don't change our attitude about God, if we don't change our belief about who God and who Christ is, then we're always going to run into the same problems where we end up saying, well, I don't need repentance. I repented last week. Or I don't need repentance. I've had a good week. I didn't have one drink this week, so I don't, I don't, I don't need to repent of that. Or I don't need repentance. My grandfather was a pastor. Or I don't need repentance. I read my Bible every night. So I don't need repentance. I was saved when I was 18. And I think John the Baptist and Jesus himself would say to us, well, if that's your way of thinking, then you need repentance more than anyone else. If you think you're okay, you're probably not. There's a band that I like very much, and I, and I considered playing, playing their song for you in church, but I don't think you would like it as much as I do. It's not easy to listen to. But they're called uh, Me Without You, um, and they've got a song in which they have, they have the, the, these lyrics, which I always keep going back to. Uh, we hunger, though all that we eat brings us little relief. We don't know quite what else to do. We have all our beliefs, but we don't want our beliefs. God of peace, we want you. And I think... And I hope and I pray that the repentance offered by John the Baptist and the ministry of our Lord Jesus brings us closer to wanting him and not our beliefs. If you think your Bible or your parents' faith or the fact that you come to church or the fact that you've been a Christian all your life, if you think that will save you, on the day of judgment, I don't think it will. I think when you can honestly, in the privacy of your own heart, say to yourself, Lord God, I have all these beliefs, but I don't want beliefs. I want you. I think that is repentance. I think that's what God offers us. A chance to do away with everything that takes us far away from Him. A chance to be refined by that fire and spirit. Not so that we may have more faith or more prayers or more offerings or more services or more instruments or more anything, but so that we may have less and less and less and when we are done, and when the Lord is done with us, be left simply with the God of peace. I think that is repentance. And I think that is why you must wake up every morning repenting anew. 
That is why you must wake up every morning and go to bed every night, repenting of the things that you don't even know you are adding to your faith. Repenting of the fact that you think you can rely on who you are, who you were, who you're going to be, what you have, what you don't have. The only thing you can rely on, my friend, is Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is the word of the Lord. So let's close our eyes now to pray together and to truly repent of all our beliefs that get in the way when we seek the Lord. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we often get so confused. We, we walk around in this world like people who need their glasses but have lost them a long time ago. We walk around searching with our hands stretched out in front of us, looking to find you, but because we are half blind, we end up gathering a bunch of other things, substitutes for you and your grace. But now, Lord, through the working of your spirit and through the working of your word, you have opened our eyes. You have healed our blindness. You have given us lenses through which to see you and to see you clearly. And now we realize we have too many things. We have too many beliefs. And we have all our beliefs, but we don't want our beliefs. God of peace, we want you. We want to see you as clearly as John the Baptist saw you. We want to hear your voice as clearly as those who are standing around when you, Lord Jesus, were baptized. We want to grab hold of you, Lord Jesus. We want to leave everything else behind. Forgive us for the things we gather to ourselves that we think will save us and show us who you really are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.